Uh, that's exactly what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about making a big splash. Now, um, it's been summer, and so my family has been doing this quite a lot, literally, lately this summer. Uh, last month, we traveled over to uh, the Smoky Mountains and other parts of, of eastern Tennessee, just some beautiful country, and we spent a lot of time doing lots of different things, very active, but spent a lot of time in the water. And uh, while I was there in Tennessee, you know, you see all these, these great mountains, and we're hanging out near some mountain streams and some different swimming holes, and, and, uh, and I, I remembered all this advice that I've been given in my life over and over again by different people, especially since I've been a pastor. And that the advice is, go jump off a cliff. And so I thought I would try it while I was in Tennessee. I think I got a picture here of this. Yeah, there I am, jumping off this cliff. Luckily, the water was deep enough, and I didn't land on the rocks there, so I survived. Lucky for me, unfortunately, for some of you. Um, I know you would have wished it another way. Just kidding. Um, but uh, then, then my daughter Ellie got up here uh, after, before we left. She's like, Dad, I want to do it. And I looked at my wife, and she's kind of like, ah. She's like, okay. And so then we got up there, and Ellie, at 12 years old, jumped off, and uh, we, we made a big splash that way. Then last weekend, um, last weekend, my, my uh, in-laws, Jocelyn's parents, came down, and we spent a long weekend at Big Cedar Lodge near Branson. How many of you have been to Big Cedar before? Yeah, it's a great place. First time there, we really enjoyed it. Um, one day, though, it was raining all morning, which kind of put a, a damper on our plans. And so we're in our room, and we're thinking, gosh, we got to get out. And, um, and so, you know, it wasn't thundering and lightning. We said, well, it's just raining. And we went down to one of the pools. And uh, they're, they're warm enough, and so we, uh, we were in the pool. And apparently, we're the only people who know that if you're in a pool, it doesn't matter if it rains because you're already wet. Because seriously, we were the only family, the only people in this pool at the whole resort. And so we're, we're hanging out there in the pool. And for us and our family, being alone in a pool is, is dangerous. It is just an invitation to ridiculousness. Because for some reason, deep down, I think all of us in my family, we wish we were circus performers. We were just born about a century too late, I guess. But we're doing all kinds of goofy stuff in the pool, acrobatics and flips and tricks. And, and uh, for a while, my wife and I, we were trying to do her favorite movie in all the world is Dirty Dancing. So um, here we are at this, uh, at this resort. It kind of reminds me of Kellerman's. And so we're trying to do this baby and Johnny lift in the pool. We never got it. Um, but her mom was good enough to get it on video, which I wanted to show to you today, but... I did not get permission from the legal entities in my household. They denied permission to show that video. Um, so, so we were doing that, and we're messing around. And, and so then we're like, okay, what else we can do? So, so then we turned our attention to building a human tower out of our family members. Look at that. Pretty impressive, right? Come on. Give us some props. There at the top is our daughter, Aria, and then Ellie. She's the one who jumped off the cliff. Aria, she was over there on the keys this morning. Look, at she's up there just like chilling, like what? And um, so we were doing that, and no one got hurt, thankfully. But um, we tried then, if you know my family, there's one member of my family missing. Uh, we tried to get him in. That's my son, Corbin. Now, I got a picture of Corbin. Corbin's six years old. Uh, he's just a great kid, sweet kid. But he's got a nickname. His nickname is Tank. Get it solid. He's just a solid kid. So we tried to get him in on the pyramid. It didn't work. And so he went off and did his own thing. Um, and so while we're doing our flips and our antics and the other and building towers in the other end of the pool, uh, Corbin Tank was over in the other end of the pool. And here's what he was doing. He was doing cannonball after cannonball after cannonball. And it was the cutest thing. We did not get it on video. I wish we would have. But uh, he just run to the end of the pool and go, cannonball! And then, you know, psh, and then every time he'd go into the pool, he'd come back up. And uh, he'd just start belly laughing. And he did this over and over and over again. He did not care that no one was watching, really. He was just entertaining himself. And as I watched him do that, I thought, man, I think I get this. I think I know why this is so fun. 
Because when you're six years old, even though your nickname may be Tank, when you're six years old, it's a lot of fun to be so small and yet to make such big waves, to make such a big splash. And I think that's true for all of us. Um, I I know for me that's true. I I think about my life and I go, hey, I, I get it. I am relatively small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things. I mean, the Bible says that we are like a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and then is gone. I mean, just think about your life in that way, how, how sobering that is. And yet this idea that I, someone who's but a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and then is gone, the fact that I could maybe just possibly make a big splash in the world around me, I am captivated and enamored by that idea. See, deep down, I think we all dream a dream. And it's all the same for all of us. It may look a little bit different in application, but I believe it's fundamentally the same dream. The dream is not just for a life of success or comfort. It's ultimately a dream of, of making a cannonball, doing a cannonball on the world stage, making a big splash. Now, some of us, we don't know that we're dreaming this dream yet. We're still chasing after another dream that we also have, and that's the dream of being successful or being comfortable. And for a lot of us, we're still relatively young, and, and so we haven't realized that, that one day, even if we chase after success, even if we attain it, one day we're going to look, look around at our successful life, and we're going to look at our comfortable life, maybe even our opulent life that we're living, and we're going to ask a two-word question that's going to change everything, it's going to wreck everything. The, the question is, so what? So what? I'm comfortable, I'm successful. The people I love are comfortable. We, we live a luxury life. So what? What does it matter? What is it all for? What difference does it make? Is that why I'm here? Just to live a comfortable life and then to disappear? And to leave nothing behind, not a trace? Now, some of us, we've already been wrecked by that question. We've already asked that question. And for some of us, the only thing that's stopping us from making a big impact is we just, we don't know how. It's easy to do it in a pool. It's a lot harder to do it in life. Well, in our journey as a church, we've been learning some things about how to make a big splash in the world around us that we believe are truly applicable to each and every one of you as an individual. But let me explain it this way. Perhaps you have heard, if you follow the news, um, that the church in America is in trouble. I say the church in America because the church around the world is doing quite well, but the church in America is in trouble. Uh, The Pew Forum... Pew Research Group, they did this study, and they're always studying the religious landscape of America, and they found this. Between 2007 and 2014, um, every major segment of Christianity has been in decline. Evangelical Protestants, in decline. Catholics, in decline. Mainline Protestants, in decline. Non-Christian faiths, up slightly. And then take a look at this. The unaffiliated, up significantly in seven years' time. Now, you don't have to read research to figure out that there's something not good going on in the, Ameri- in the American church. All you have to do is go and visit a church on a weekend. Because chances are, and of course there are a few exceptions, chances are if you walk into your typical average American church on a Sunday morning, you know what you'll see? You will see a conspicuous absence of children and young people. You'll rarely see a baptism of a child or an adult. You will see a lot of empty seats. Sometimes in grand sanctuaries, big places that used to be full, they will be relatively empty. 
You may even see as you walk in a guest book on a nice stand sitting there waiting for visitors who aren't coming. You can page through that guest book and it will be a while before you see a name. Or the last name in there will have a date a long, long time ago. See, that's the state of the American church right now. Again, the church around the world, it's thriving. God is on the move. But in America, there's something wrong. And I'm proud to say, I'm I'm grateful to say, I'm humbled to say that that is not the case here. Although we've had, yeah, right? (laughs) Glory to God. Although we've had our struggles here, certainly. um, And, you know, there was a time where we had had six worship services on a weekend. And we we did three or four different worship styles so everyone could have their favorite worship style. And uh, things were good and and God was doing work here, but, but we weren't very united as a church. We weren't very clear about who we were as a church. And so in the last few years, we've made some deliberate decisions to become more unified, to become clearer in our identity for the sake of our community. And uh, we went from six different services and four different worship styles down to one worship style in uh, three services. And, and uh, of course that takes a toll, but we're regrowing as a church and we're healthier and we're more unified and we're more focused and we're clearer about who we are for our community. I'm thankful for that. In the meantime, we're baptizing nearly 100 people a year Our getting started orientation, which is kind of the front door to to take another step here beyond worship, is vibrant. It's filled with people who've got all different kinds of stories. And I love this. I love that our church is so diverse. I love that that we're young and old and we're seasoned in our faith and we're new in our faith. I love that about this church. And our getting started orientation shows that that's the kind of church we'll continue to be. Because we have people who come into this church and they've been members of churches for their whole lives. And they're saying, you know, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being a part of a church that is all about me. I'm not here to live a life that's all about me. I'm here to make an impact. And so they come in. And then there are other people who come into our church. And this is their first experience with church. Their first experience with God. They find God here. And it's just amazing. See, are we there yet? No. There's so much for us to do still to reach this community in the way that God has called us to do it. And yet, man, I'm just so humbled to say, and I can say this with confidence, that God is making a big splash in our community through this church. And I'm so glad to be a part of it. Now, how is God doing that? Well, as we've studied what God is doing amongst us, and we're just trying to learn what God is doing, we've noticed that God has helped us embrace three three values or three behaviors, and we believe these values make all the difference, not just for us as a church, but if you embrace them in your personal life, they will make all the difference as well. They are being culturally relevant, biblically sound, and outwardly focused. I just want you to say those with me if I read those again, will you? Culturally relevant, biblically sound, and outwardly focused. Over the course of the series, we're going to talk about all three of those things, one a week, Uh, but first we're going to start talking about cultural relevance. And how this will change your life if you embrace it. Because here's the thing about cultural relevance. You cannot impact a culture you can't connect with. Right? You can't impact a culture you can't connect with. Some of you have teenagers in your life and and you're trying to reach them. Let me just tell you, you can't impact a culture. You can't impact a person that you can't connect with. If you guys are speaking different languages and you're living different realities, here's the truth for you. You can't impact a culture you can't connect with. And so for churches who do this and and they, they try to connect with the culture, churches like ours, there's often an accusation. That accusation is you're selling out. But I'll tell you, it's not selling out being culturally relevant. It's not. Cultural relevance is an idea that began in the heart of God. See, God is a big fan of cultural relevance. 
Today, I want to show you some stuff in the scripture. I want to introduce you to a guy named Jeremiah. Some of you maybe have heard of him before. He's a prophet living in the, uh, the Old Testament days. And uh, he's living in a time that's really, really difficult to be a God follower. See, see, people had been turning away from true faith. They'd been turning to other faiths. I mean, worse than what you just saw from the Pew Forums. They're turning to other faiths. And these faiths are, are just really scary faiths. Um, as a part of these faiths, people are doing all kinds of immoral and unjust and just horrendous things. And Jeremiah is raised up to be one of God's spokespeople in his generation to call them back to what is true and what is good. And it's not just that Jeremiah was called to speak to people. What's really interesting about Jeremiah is how God tells him to speak to people. I want to show you a few examples. The first one's from Jeremiah 19. Then we'll look at Jeremiah 27 in a minute. So Jeremiah chapter 19. Let's look. This is what the Lord said to Jeremiah. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests. So, so here's what I want you to do, Jeremiah. Go and buy a clay pot. You know, check. Then gather the people. Check. Then go out on a field trip to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. By the way, this is a, a gate outside of Jerusalem. And uh, outside of the potsherd gate was, was, was kind of like the city dump. That's where all their broken pottery and other things would go. Sometimes it's even referred to, as, as I understand it, as the dung gate. It's like the city dump. So go out outside of the city near this gate by the dump. You're going to look over this valley, which I'll explain to you in a minute. Um, and you've got this pot in hand. And you're there at the dump. And you've got the elders or the leaders of the people. And this is what I want you to say. Say this. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. Just think about that. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Listen to what they did. They have built the high places. They have built the high places of Baal. And they burned their children there in the fire as offerings to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter into my mind, God says. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When people will no longer call this place Topheth, which is kind of a name uh, that roughly means like furnace, or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is this place where people literally would sacrifice their children to this false god Baal. But God says, I'll rename this place. It will be called the Valley of Slaughter because of what's going to happen to you. So God has these words of warning that he wants Jeremiah to speak because people are turning away from him. But notice it's not just that God is saying, hey, I'm going to slaughter you because you don't believe in me anymore. What God is really upset about is all the things that happen after a people turn their hearts away from him. See, that's true for us. Um, if we turn our hearts away from true worship of God, then we are opening up ourselves up to do just all kinds of things. And, and we don't realize that. We think we're civilized. We think we're polite. We think we know better. But, but it's, this, it's this love of God, the spirit of God that dwells in us that restrains us from unthinkable evil. And if you don't believe me, just look around at the world, at places where the love of God is not taught, and you'll see things, and you'll hear things, and you'll hear stories of the things that people, humans, do to each other that are unthinkable. And so God is saying, I cannot tolerate this anymore. I can't tolerate people sacrificing their children 
burning their children alive. I, 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 can't, I can't handle it anymore. So Jeremiah, I want you to preach this message. And then God says, but, but remember that jar I gave you? Here's what I want you to do. Preach this message, and then I want you to break the jar. While those who go with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. And they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. So, so God has this hard word to speak through Jeremiah, but it's not just through words. Take a look at Jeremiah 27 now, another narrative. Um, this time, King Nebuchadnezzar is this, this king of the Babylonian Empire. Maybe you've heard of him. If not, it's okay. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is now moving in and he's conquering large parts of the world including the part of the world where Jerusalem is, where, where God's people are, and uh, all these cities around. And they're all panicked. They're freaking out. They're trying to figure out how they can band together to resist King Nebuchadnezzar. And in that time, God raises up Jeremiah to speak again. So early in the reign of one of the kings of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke. Now we're not talking about yoke, like an egg yoke, right? And we're talking about a yoke. It's this, it's this device that you put on, on some oxen and then you'd hook them up to a plow or a cart. It's this, this symbol of servanthood or being under the, the, uh, the authority of, of something else. So make a yoke of straps and crossbars and put it on your own neck, just like you're an ox. Then I want you to send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Amnon, Tyre, and Sidon all around this region. Through these envoys, so, so these envoys have come to Jerusalem, again, to figure out what to do, how, how they're going to fight against Nebuchadnezzar. So I want you to send a word to them, he says. Give them this message for their masters and say, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Tell this to your masters. With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I will give it to anyone I please, which is, frankly, a pretty big claim. Because back in those days, people believed that Every nation had their own God, and different gods looked after their own people. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the one who made all of this. And ultimately, I do with the world as I please. It's not about your rival gods. I am the only true and living God. So here's what God says he'll do. He says, now I'll give, you, now I'll give all of your countries into the hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. And then, at that time, many nations and great kings will sub subjugate him. I'll overthrow him later, too. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with a sword, famine, and plague, declares the Lord, until I destroy it by his hand. So again, another powerful word saying, hey, Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Don't resist him. I'm using him to, to fix some injustice that's going on here. And if you resist him, you'll only come to an end of yourself. Strong and clear message. Strong words from God. And yet, is anyone asking as you read this stuff, you're like, okay, but what's with the props, really? I mean, like the jar and smashing the jar. Isn't that a little overkill? I mean, putting a yoke on and walking around and giving this message and be like, see this yoke? That's going to be you. I mean, like... Is this like a children's message or something? I mean, what's with all these object lessons? And, and then there's another time God tells Jeremiah, go, go take a linen belt, a brand new belt, and, and put it in this dirty rock and then get it out later. And, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ruin you. you know, like, okay. You know, take these wineskins and just all of this object lesson stuff. And, and you can just imagine the people of Jeremiah's day, especially the really devout people. 
the, you know, the really religious, the, the faithful people, saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, enough with the antics already. You know, enough with all this showmanship. We don't need the pot. We don't need the yoke. Just preach to us the word, Jeremiah. We're not here for a show. Just give us the message. Problem is, this stuff wasn't Jeremiah's idea. All of the antics, that wasn't his idea. Whose idea was that? That's right, it was God's idea. See, God started this whole relevance thing. God God commanded Jeremiah to go out of his way to be clear, to be memorable, to to be relevant, to do something that would would stand out in the minds of the people. In fact, relevance, that's what that is. I mean, it's, and I don't know if this definition is very helpful. uh, It says practical and especially social applicability pertinence. See, when you've got a message that's so important that you cannot afford people not to hear it, then you've got to find a way to be practical, to be socially applicable, to be pertinent. In other words, to be relevant. Now, missionaries figured this out a long time ago. Uh, If you know anything about missionary history, you know what missionaries used to do when they would go into a new field and they would have this message to preach? First, they would make the people learn their language. So if they're English missionaries, it'd be English. If they're French, they'd learn French. They'd teach people their language. Then they'd teach them how to dress and how to eat and how to act. And then they would tell them about Jesus. Basically, they were saying, hey, you need to become English or French before you become a follower of Jesus. That's what they did. You don't have to know a lot about missionary theory To know that that's a terrible way to tell people about Jesus. So what do missionaries do now? They move into a culture and the first thing they do, they learn the language. And they they live among people and they eat their food and they dress like them. And they learn their rituals and they learn their stories. Why? So that they can begin to contextualize the message of what God has done in a way that that culture will understand. And guess what? It's hugely successful. I, I told you, the American church is in trouble. The church around the world is not. It is thriving and growing. God is on the move doing amazing things. So maybe the church in America could learn from the church around the world, huh? I mean, that's why we here at St. John, when we preach the gospel here, we do it with some other things accompanying it. We do it with lights. You know, you're like, what's with the lights? We, we do it with lights and we do it with fog. What's with the fog? I mean, I don't get the fog. We do the video and screens and visuals and the instruments of our day. Why? Because that's how our culture communicates. That's what makes sense to our culture. Now, before you pull out your opinion on all of those things and whether they belong in worship or not, let me just remind you of something. In the Old Testament tabernacle worship, back in temple worship days, guess what? They used a lot of the same things. They used lights. They have these fancy, fancy candle stands and, and they use smoke and they use visuals and they use the instruments of their day, just like we do. They use stuff that would make no sense to you today. I mean, in the Old Testament tabernacle, they had pomegranates everywhere. Now, how many of you like pomegranates? I mean, they're pretty tasty, right? Yeah, it's good. But I mean, what the heck is with a pomegranate? It's like on fabric and on candle stands and pomegranates. What does that mean? It means nothing to us, but it meant something to people in that day, and God commanded that those things would be there because he wanted the worship of him to be relevant to the people. In the Middle Ages, people did the same. I mean, how many of you think stained glass is beautiful? I do, me too. I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing. Do you realize that at one point, stained glass wasn't sacred, churchy stuff? Stained glass was high technology. 
And the reason they put stained glass in churches is because there were these drab, dark places. And they thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could bring colored light into our drab, dark places of worship? And they didn't have LED lights to do it. They did it with stained glass. But it was technology. It accomplished something. And they thought, wouldn't it be great if you could give people pictures to look at when the message gets boring? And so they made these huge windows of Jesus, you know, doing stuff. And, and people could just be like, man, this is boring today. But let's look at the picture and, and think about Jesus and something good will happen, right? They had a purpose. They were relevant to people at a time. And then we've turned those things and we said, oh, no, those aren't, those aren't relevant. This is what it means to be reverent. So if you want to be reverent, you have to have stained glass. No, it wasn't about reverence. It's about relevance. We're the organ, right? The organ. We think the organ is like this instrument of, like, it is, it is the church instrument. But in the Middle Ages, they had to fight to use the organ. The organ was seen as crass. It was seen as lowbrow, as bush league. I mean, come on, it's like a one-man orchestra. It's like this guy's pushing buttons and pulling stops and playing things, and he can make a sound like a, an orchestra. That's weird. That's odd. That's what they do in bars, and, and that's not what they do in churches. People like Martin Luther and other reformers had to argue for the use of the organ because it was such a crass instrument in a sacred place. But, but why did they use it? Because it was relevant. We've turned that into an object of reverence. We measure churches, you know, orthodoxy by how much they play the organ. It's crazy. It's not about reverence. It was about relevance. The Apostle Paul, who lived after Jesus and took the gospel around the world, do you know what he said in 1 Corinthians 9? He said to Jewish people, I became like a Jewish person. And to Greek people, I acted like a Greek person. And to people under the law, I lived like I was under the law. And to the weak, I became weak. Guess what he says? He says, I became all things to all people. I became relevant to whoever I was with. Why? So that by any possible means, I might save some. You see, dating back to Jeremiah, even before, God had this idea in mind. And this idea was to be relevant with his important truth. So why would we stop now? In a day when our message is more important than ever. I mean our message is way more important than Jeremiah's. And God had him doing all this antics with pots and yokes. And, and Jeremiah's message was basically like. Hey Israel's going to get wiped out. And, and you're going to go on time out for 70 years. And the message we preach is so much more important than that. We're not preaching a message about King Nebuchadnezzar coming. We're preaching a message that King Jesus has come. And that he is reigning and ruling. And he has established his reign and rule. And, and it's here and it's present even though you can't see it. And in the meantime, we're all living in this age that is going to pass away. But Jesus has invited us to come into his reign and rule. Where we can find life. Where we can find freedom. Where we can find wholeness. Where we can find healing. Where we can live forever. And meanwhile, the world's just kind of living, imagining that life's going to go on forever the way it is. And we're going, no, 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 there's something better. You don't have to live that way anymore. There's something richer that will last forever. How important is that message? And do you think God would, would limit us in any way from, from preaching that message? I mean, if it's, if it's tap dancing that gets people tap dance, if it's singing, sing. If it's pyrotechnics and fireworks, why wouldn't we do that? See, God in his heart, has a deep desire that we would be relevant as we communicate the, the life-changing truth of what Jesus has done. And, and if you're not sure about that still, if you're still wishing for the old days, or let me just remind you that, that Jesus himself was the master of relevance. 
Some of you know that there were times where Jesus would teach and there would be you know, 5, 10, 15,000 people gathered around to hear him. And do you know why? Some of it was because he did miracles, but some of it was he taught differently than everyone else in his time. The, the other religious teachers just opened up the scriptures and they'd read it and they'd pontificate and they'd wag their finger at people. And Jesus, he was different. He would tell stories. He would teach through stories. He'd say, hey, you know what it's like when, when you're out there shepherding your sheep and you count heads and you realize one is missing and you go, one of my sheep is missing. And you, you know how you run out and you, and you go find that sheep? And how happy you are when you find it. You know what it's like, Jesus would say, when, when, you, when you have some money and uh, you, you lose it in your house somewhere, you got a check, you know, it's payday, and somewhere you check and you can't find it. And you know how you dig through the couch cushions and you're looking under stuff and you're cleaning and you're, you, and when you find that check, you're like so excited. You celebrate. You do the happy dance, right? Jesus says, hey, the same thing is true about God. He is so delighted when, when one person who has been lost comes back to a relationship with him. And then people just nod their heads and they go, we get it. We're not a burden on God. God is delighted when we come back to him. It's crazy. Jesus would look at fig trees as he's walking with his disciples and he'd say, hey, you guys know how this works with the fig tree. The, the buds get kind of tender and, 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 and the leaves get kind of tender and you can tell that it's about to, it's about to bear fruit. They go, yeah, of course, we all know that. We know exactly what a fig tree looks like. I mean, this is the props in their world. And, and, uh, and Jesus said, hey, in the same way, watch for the signs of the times. If you're attentive, you'll see that God is about to do something big. He's about to do something new and fruitful. And they go, okay, we get it. See, Jesus was the master of relevance in his teaching, but even bigger than that, not only in his teaching, in his own being. Do you realize that Jesus became one of us? Before forever changing the world? I mean, you do, but do you realize what this means? That Jesus became one of us before he attempted to change and impact the world? Before he came to make a splash? He said, no, no, no. First, I'm going to become one of you. I'm going to become that relevant. I'm going to learn your language. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to cry with you. I'm going to laugh with you. I'm going to go through all the ups and downs of life with you. Not so that I can understand you, but so that you can understand me, so that you can finally believe that, that my Father is good and that, that we love you. Jesus says, I'm going to become one of you so that you get it, that we're not trying to take anything from you, that that's not what I'm about, but, but, but I'm, here to, I'm here to bring you life and to bring it to the full. I want to show you that I'm a, I'm a God who, who welcomes sinners. I'm, I welcome broken people. I'm not after the righteous. I'm after all of you. See, Jesus became relevant to us. He put on flesh so that we would get his message. I mean, to me, this is just mind-boggling. That God is so dedicated to relevance that he put on flesh. He became one of us before he forever changed our world. This is life-changing, not just for churches or pastors or missionaries. This is life-changing for every person here, for each of us, personally. And here's a warning for you. That if, if you are sitting here and you're just like, you know what, it's too much work and, and you refuse to be relevant, if that's you, then what you're essentially doing is you are throwing in the towel on ever making a big splash. If you're someone who rolls your eyes at every new technological trend and you just kind of say, I'm just done with all that stuff, 
Realize what you're doing. You're limiting your impact. If you're someone who, who exists in a subculture and you just rather stay in your subculture rather than deal with the things that are going on in the broader culture, then you are limiting your impact. Now, now Christian radio, like Christian radio is good. Joy FM is good. But let me speak to this for a minute. If you spend all of your time listening to Joy FM and watching Christian movies and reading Christian books, then you're only making yourself relevant to other Christians. And it's good to impact other Christians. We need that. But God has called you to something bigger and higher, not just to impact other Christians, but to impact the world. We know this. If you fail to keep up with changes in your industry or in your marketplace, then you are shaking hands with obsolescence. And some of you have made that deal. You are okay with it. You're just content. You're just saying, I'm done. I'm out. I'm just going to be irrelevant the rest of my days. But I just got to ask you, is that really what you want for your life? Really? I mean, deep down, isn't there still a dream in you to make a splash in the world around you and things that really matter, eternal things, while you, st- while you still have breath in your lungs? So today, I want you to rethink your stance on relevance. Are you someone who demands that the world becomes more like you? Are you willing to become a little bit more like the world, to learn from the world so that you can be heard, so that your impact can be felt, so that your splash can be a little bit wider? If so, I'd encourage you to, 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 to change your approach. And there are a few things I want to share with you on how you can become relevant if this is something you're not good at. Just a few ideas or suggestions that might help you. The first is this. You can read a book. You can read a book. There are a lot of people who are culture watchers who, uh, who write books about this stuff to help us figure out how to uh, engage in culture better or what's going on in the culture. Read one of those books. Or maybe just read a book that's written by someone whose viewpoint on the world is totally different than yours. See, I'm concerned about, about our culture because, especially as Christians, what we so often do is we, 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 we dial into a few different voices and we turn on our favorite news and that's the only place we want to go to for news. Or we read our certain newspapers and those are the only people we trust to, to give us news. Or we only read things by certain authors. And what we're doing is, is again, we're, we're limiting our impact. Maybe you just need to read a book written by someone who thinks very differently about the world than you do. So that you can understand how other people think so that you can become more relevant. Or maybe you need to get a reverse mentor. Have you guys heard about this, reverse mentoring? It's trend in the last five years or so, maybe a little longer. Um, we all know mentoring, right? You, you have someone who is more experienced show you the ropes and teach you from the basis of their experience, and it's a great thing. You know, Steve Power is one of my mentors. I have others, and I'm, I'm so thankful for mentors in my life. It's powerful. But uh, a few years ago, someone thought of this idea of reverse mentoring, and they said, you know, it's also great when you're experienced in season, it's great to, to invite someone who's younger to explain some things about the world to you, to explain technology. You know, how do I use my iPhone, and what's these podcast things all about, and, and you know, all of that stuff that's hard to keep up with, reverse mentoring. Now, now, we are way ahead of the curve here at St. John. I don't know if you realize this. We have an enormous program for reverse mentoring. We just call it children's ministry and uh, student ministry. But do you realize that's, that's what it is? I mean, you're making a difference in the life of a kid, and you're providing some stability and maturity for them. But they're also teaching you so much. They're teaching you about the world, and they're teaching you what all of these weird words mean that are just keep showing up in the dictionary, and you're like, where do these words come from? They're, they're teaching you those words, and they're teaching you about technology, and they're teaching you about who the cultural icons are. You will grow. You will learn and become more relevant 
based on spending time with them. Again, talk to the people in the lobby about that. Uh, another way is just to ask people questions. I notice in my own conversations with people, I've noticed in conversations with others, there are very few people who just spend their lives asking questions. Most of us spend a lot of time talking or telling but by asking questions, you may learn about how people see the world or how they think or what's going on so that it will help you understand the world and become more relevant to it. Uh, and then last, kind of goes with it, just study the culture instead of being so quick to judge the culture. Be curious about the things that are going gangbusters through our culture. You know, you, know, you turn on the radio stations that are the pop radio stations and for some of, for some of us, you're like, oh, what is all this noise? Gosh, how can anyone like this song? And yet it's a song that's being downloaded on iTunes, you know, every, every three seconds someone's downloading it and it's a big song and, and you just, you just kind of write that stuff off and you just turn it off and you judge it and you go, music today, I'll tell you about real music. I had music back in the day, you could dance, you know. Instead of judging the culture, instead of being all frustrated about where culture has gone, be curious about the culture. It doesn't mean you have to like all that stuff. But you should at least take the time to ask the question of saying, what is it about this that is so compelling to so many? What is going on under the surface? Why is this song captivating the minds of people all over our country? Be curious. See, because if you do, if you do some of these things, then you'll be well on your way to becoming relevant. And when you can be relevant, when you can be relevant, then let me tell you, God will begin to use you in ways that are bigger than you can imagine to make a splash in things that matter. Let me pray.